You are about to listen to a sermon from Common Ground Church in Rapid City, South Dakota. We hope to see you in person. For more information, visit commongroundcma.org. Christmas. Who here is a total Grinch? Yes, okay. There was a a hand in the back waving wildly, just so you know, over there. Like, I've never seen someone excited to be a Grinch, but that's okay. It's like usually a painful admission. Like, yes, I don't run with the rest of the crowd, but Barb's in the back there. Yeah, Grinches! Um, Anyways, so, uh, yes, I'm a horrible Grinch. Um, I I have to admit that to you. Um, I, I don't, it's not that I hate any of this stuff, but I worked in retail for like, uh, over a decade, and if you work in retail for over a decade, you begin to hate Christmas music. And that's the opening gate to being a, grunge, a Grinch, really, is what it is. So you begin to hate Christmas music. And as you learn to hate Christmas music, this darkness just kind of settles right into your soul. And uh, and what happens is that everything else is like, blah, lights, blah, twinkle, blah, joy, blah, hope, right? And, like, it just, it's this this path that kind of just winds down this this real dark place. And uh, But I wasn't always like that. I wasn't always like that. I was like any other kid, right? I used to be real excited about Christmas, and especially because my mom's a gift giver. She loves giving gifts, right? Yeah, these my my kids know this. My love, my mom loves giving gifts, and so Christmas was real exciting, right? Like uh, joyful time, like super exciting, like oh, I can't wait for Christmas. Ah. And uh, I would uh, I would sneak around the house and try to find my presents. Anybody do that? Raise your hand if you snuck around the house. To find your presence. That's surprisingly low, actually. That's a surprisingly low number. Yeah, I would sneak around the house, and when my parents would go out shopping or something like that, I'd be like, alright, I've got two and a half hours, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tear this place apart, and I'm gonna find my presence, and then I'm gonna make sure I put it all back. And then one year, I hit the mother load, and I found every single present my parents bought. Three days before Christmas. Every single one, right? And so then, the next morning, like a you know super smart eight year old, um, I was real excited at breakfast, and I just uh, I think I overtly like blurted out like, "Man, I can't wait to play with!" And then the toy came out, right, <laughs> while my mom's standing there. <laughs> and so she looks at me with this laser, this laser, this laser gaze, and she goes, "What did you just say?" And I'm like, "Bah, bah, 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 bah I don't." Uh, uh. And then what happened was she said, "You're, I'm, I'm, I'm not." going to return every one of those presents, but you are going to act excited. <laughs> but if you met my mom, she says it like this, but you are going to act excited, right? Because she's this, like, you know, Wisconsin lady. And, uh, and so I learned in that particular moment that uh, Christmas really is the season of lies. And, um, and that, that, I think, was the start of the Grinch part of everything, right? Like, how many times have you had a fake to somebody, like, oh, yay, thanks for the <laughs> socks and stuff, right? Yeah, actually, it's interesting, the older you get, the more you love the gifts of socks. Yeah, um, I, I, I kid, I kid, uh, you know, Christmas is not the season of lies, although, um, oftentimes we have to, we feel a pressure to act joyful and excited about Christmas when maybe we aren't, maybe we're hurting, maybe we got stuff going on like we just talked about. That part of Christmas I really don't like is that pressure to be overtly excited and to have to make everybody's life magical. Cause you know what? Everyone's life's not magical in December. There's a lot of stuff that happens in this world. 
Today, we're looking at, uh, we're continuing our march down uh, the, the path of what we've been studying. We're calling this series Meaty Faith. Uh, first of all, just to take a kind of side note, I just want to thank Justin for, for speaking last week. Thank you, Justin. Can you guys give him like one clap? Okay, good. Thank you. Uh, that's all you get, man. Uh, no, he did a fantastic job. I listened to his sermon this week. I put it through the grading rubric. Uh, he got like a B plus, so that's pretty good. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Yeah, I'm just kidding. He actually got like he actually scored in the 90s, which is really good. Um, but uh, yeah, so he did really well, and I think uh, I think we're gonna get him up here a bit more because uh, a little bit of practice and. Uh, and he's going to be pretty pretty good at this whole thing. So, uh, so thank you for for holding down the fort last week. Uh, where I've been for the last two weeks is I've been recovering from shoulder surgery. If you didn't know that that was uh, I actually didn't have shoulder surgery, I had bicep tendinitis. Ten, tendinitis. They took my bicep tendon and had to reattach it into my arm. Uh, so that was super fun. Uh, I'm not going to talk about it in detail. That's fine. Um, I you'll see me after church wearing a sling. It's not because I'm milking it. I actually have been cleared to get out of the sling in private moments, in private private spheres, but it's just distracting when you have it on. I can't actually move it, and like it's okay. Um, but uh, but I, I will be wearing the sling in order to protect it, and uh, just to let you know, uh, I'm just you'll see that for the next couple of weeks because that's doctor's orders. So, um, but I just want to say that thank you for to Nick and thank you to Justin for holding down the fort. It's really really great to even come here and listen and uh, and be spoken to. Uh, in the to, to have the word of God brought to you, um, it's just something that I, I just love. Uh, today, though, we are marching through, continuing to march through meaty faith. This is uh, reflections on the incarnation. Uh, why is it called meaty faith? Well, you've been you've been privy to this information, right? If you think about the word incarnation, um, it's actually from Latin, right? So it's uh, en incarne. So it's to to embody, to wrap in in flesh. To the, the word carne, right? You would get that from certain places in the grocery store, store where you'd have uh, chili con carne is chili with meat, right, yep, so that's the idea here, it's, to, it's actually chili with flesh we would say chili with meat, but that's the idea, chili with flesh, and this, so this is the concept the understanding of God taking on flesh, which is a huge paradigm shift in the way that we see things in different worldviews and different worldview structures, this is the thing that makes Christianity exceedingly different than everything else out there, okay God comes and he takes on flesh now, there are some times where God's come in other worldview systems, but it's usually just to mess with humanity, not to take on flesh and to die for humanity. And so this is what we celebrate in Christmas, is Jesus coming to take on flesh for very specific reasons. And most of the time, we would look at those reasons and go, man, I know exactly what reason. He came because I'm so special, right? Or he, he came because uh, just because he loves me, because he loves me so much. And maybe some of those things are accurate, but we wanted to go to the Scripture and go, why did Jesus say that he came? What, was his, what are his reasons for coming? And then as we think about all of that, what we begin to, what we begin to realize is that Jesus' reasons for coming become... Our pattern for living. Like Jesus came and he says in, in, in the book of John, he says, As the Father has sent me, so send I you. So now I'm sending you. As the Father sent me, so now I'm sending you. So how did God send Jesus? How did that work? What does it look like? Why did Jesus come? Because then he says, as that happened, now I'm sending you. So the reasons I have come are now the reasons you are to go. That's what we would call the Great Commission. So today we're going to look at one of Jesus' statements about why he came that I think is exceedingly relevant for our world today, right now. I think it's actually one of the biggest statements that Jesus 
says about why he came that is relevant for our world today. And I'm really hoping it's kind of a, what we're going to do is we're going to take kind of a 500,000 look view or 50,000 look, uh, 50,000 foot view of theology as a whole and then kind of come down into the text, okay? So you have to hold with me. I'm hoping to not be a confusing preacher, but there's something actually really, really powerful in understanding this thing as a whole. So this statement that we're going to look at is going to come out in John chapter 18. If you have a Bible, find your Bible, grab it, turn to John 18. It's going to be a little while before we get to the text, but I want you there and ready. If you didn't bring a Bible, man, we'll talk after class. (laughs) But this statement comes out during Jesus' trial and crucifixion. This comes out at the end of Jesus' life. So I know it's like confusing, right? Like we're celebrating Christmas. This is supposed to be the beginning of Jesus' life. Well, even saying beginning and end is not really applicable to Jesus, right? Because He's eternal and infinite. So there's, there's some stuff going on even there in the way that we see things. But today, this is going to approach, or this is going to appear in Jesus' conversation with Pilate who's a a ruler, a Roman ruler, who's ruling over Jerusalem. Like I said, before we do that, though, we're going to take kind of a 50,000-foot view and then drop down into the context and take a look at what's going on. Today, I brought a prop, and I'm going to send this prop around. And this is a pretty cool little thing here. Um, This story that we're about to read, I think, has its roots all the way back in the Garden of Eden, in the very first two chapters, three chapters of Scripture. And in the first three chapters of Scripture, you see God in this beautiful moment where His divine word, His powerful word, as it escapes His lips, what happens? Stuff forms and has a purpose. Stuff has a purpose. It begins, he begins to establish order. He begins to establish a rule and a reign. Right? And all of a sudden, what he's doing is he's saying, hey, light, come into being. But it's not just about creating particles of light. It's like, hey, light, come into being. You're going to be here for the seasons and for the days and, and for actually communication of like when to come and worship and all that type of stuff. You're going to be a, a calendar for my people. And he says, hey, land, come here. You're going to be fruitful and we're going to have, this is a space for you to live on. And this is a beautiful thing that God is doing as he's creating everything. And then as he's speaking everything into being, right? He speaks this beautiful, this entire cosmos into being. We would say the word universe, but I think cosmos is better. Cosmos is like everything that's obviously created materially, but everything that's also created with a purpose and with a meaning to it. But in the beginning, God speaks these things into being, and it's beautiful and majestic and marvelous and powerful. And, and with a few of his words, he, he puts everything together. And, and what he says at the end of it is it's very good. Everything's very good. He sits back at his work. He goes, man, that's good stuff. These are things hopefully you've heard before. But as God speaks and things come into being, as he paints life with his words, we see all things come into being. And what are they? They're beautiful and they're powerful and they're ordered and they work and they're functional. But they're also something that causes a deep movement within our soul when we look at the things that are put together. They have somehow been imprinted with God's beauty and His power that moves us, right? So as you, as you stand at the edge of a cliff, or as you stood yesterday maybe out in the snow and just watched it fall, or maybe when you hear, some people like the crying sounds of babies, right? Like when you hear new life. Those things, those moments, those are powerful moments. They are incredibly powerful moments where all of a sudden God's going, hey, I imprinted this with my being, with my presence, with my power, and this stuff's supposed to make you feel me and direct your attention to me. 
And that is what we get to see each and every day. We would, it's just a beautiful, powerful thing. I mean, think about sunsets, think about snowfalls, all that stuff. That stuff is here to say to us when we look at it, we go, wow, that's beautiful. You're supposed to be thinking, what is beauty even? Where does it come from? Where does it, where does it come from? How do I get there? What, where, did, where did this beauty come from? And it comes from an all-powerful God who leaves his fingerprint of power and majesty on the things that he creates. But he also then boils around, and at the end of all this, at the crescendo of all this created order, he speaks everything into being, and finally he says, oh, let us make man in our own image. Let us let us create them. Man, this is going to be great, right? And he forms and he fills the man with his spirit, and the man stands up on the ground, and, and all of a sudden he's, he's there, and God's like, wow, that's really, really good. And what he actually ends up leaving, imprinted in the man, and imprinted in everything around the man, is love and relationship. In fact, he even boils all of that around into the man's all alone, right? And he creates this man and the man's going... And, and, and God looks at the man and he goes, Man, it's, this is very good, but it is not good that man should be alone. So he raises up another person to be with him in the person of Eve. And they fall in love. and they, It's beautiful. There's music. Gross. But it's not just the relationship between Adam and Eve that God establishes. He thumbprints His imprint onto the created order between Adam and Eve so that they have a relationship. They have a need for relationship. But He also does that because He's a relationship-based God who has relatability. He, He wants to relate with His creation. He does relate with His creation. He does communicate to His creation all of the time. And it's beautiful that He does that. You ever wonder why we get lonely sometimes? You ever wonder why we need to be around people? You ever wonder why we do this whole thing called church where we're actually sitting next to somebody, maybe even touching their shoulder? Yeah, go ahead. Lean lean next to the person next to you. That's how you're doing it. Everybody wants to. Okay, good. Yeah. You ever wonder? I saw that. It was amazing. Yep. Pulled the old yawn move. Never tried that myself. That's how I broke my shoulder. Anyways, uh, so... Just kidding. Uh, but do you ever wonder why we do this? Why we relate with people? Why we need people? Why we need love? Why we need those things? It's because God imprinted that on us because He is in relationship already with Himself. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, this is triune, beautiful relationship that is God Almighty. And so you have this relationship-oriented God who creates a relationship-oriented being. And, and God says, hey, so here's the deal. We need to We need to define the relationship a little bit. Right? We need to define the relationship a little bit because you can't just have chaos in a relationship. That's not going to work. And so God places these trees in the garden. There's two of them. You get extra brownie Jesus points if you get the names of them. One is the tree. Uh, oh, never mind. They're up there. Okay, great. Yeah, so. All right. So there's one, the tree of life. What I have here, this is super cool. My friend Lindsay got this for me uh, from Egypt. This, on a papyrus, we'll pass this around, is the tree of life from the Egyptian culture. This image has not changed for 4,000 years. Pretty cool, huh? Well, a little bit more color into this one, just so you know. I'm going to pass this around. The tree of life is something that is uh, in almost every single culture in uh, in the realm of ancient Mesopotamia, in the realm of Babylon. Almost every single culture. 
This one actually predates, this, the, the image here, predates the image we would get in the Bible, which is really interesting, and we won't get into that. But, well, we can get into that. What I think's happening is, well, I'll, I'll tell you what's happening, but I'm going to pass this around, okay? You can take a look at it. Go ahead. It's a little bit fragile, so don't, don't destroy it, all you guys with too much muscles. Um, okay, but the tree of life, right? So there's this beautiful thing called the tree of life. In almost every other culture in ancient Mesopotamian literature that we have, the tree of life is something that if you steal a fruit from the tree of life, you get to be one of the gods. You get to be one of the gods. Yes, okay, I'm going to find this tree. It's hidden away. It's somewhere tucked away. It's probably on the mountain. It's probably on the mountain where the gods exist. And if I can rebel hard enough, I can sneak in, I can steal some fruit, I'm going to be like one of them. I'm going to be them, right? And then you enter the Hebrew story. And where's the tree of life? It's there freely to be eaten from. God says in Genesis, you can eat from every tree in the garden. But do not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Right? This tree of life actually appears in the book of Revelation where it is in the presence of God Almighty and its existence, its purpose is to bring healing to the nations. Its purpose is to bring life and to bring healing and to bring uh, redemption and salvation into people's lives. Right? Like it's this image of in God's presence there is life. And it's funny, it's awesome that the Bible actually takes this, right? It takes this imagery from all the cultures around them and says, hey, you guys got this wrong. It's not steal it and become like God. It's actually in God's presence. And so you get to be with God. Totally different, if you think about that. Totally different. But you don't just have the tree of life. Now you have also the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Right? The tree of knowledge of good and evil. And what God says in this is He says, in the day that you eat of it, surely you will die. And those of you who are in my Genesis class, that means to what? Anybody? To die, die. Yep, it's a double death, right? Okay, it's actually the Hebrew word correctly translated is dying in your death, you will die. It's a permanent movement of death. And God says, He warns them, He says, don't take from that tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, because in the day of that that you take of it, you will die in your death and you will begin living in death. Also a very beautiful picture. And what I think God is doing there is in these Hebrew texts, what he's saying is he's going, hey, when we come to define the relationship, here's the deal. The one thing I don't want you messing with is truth. I don't want you messing with what is the knowledge of good and evil. You get that from me. Don't take that for yourself. Because in the day that you take that for yourself, you will bring death into this world and you will invite death into our relationship. Because that is how I want to relate with you. You come to me and get truth. That is what God is saying in this tree of knowledge of good and evil thing. It wasn't to be eaten from because God says, come take your truth, your knowledge of good and evil from me. Let me tell you all about good and all about evil. I will tell you everything. And in this moment, all of a sudden, this crafty little serpent comes up and says, God doesn't, God, you're not going to die. God just thinks you're going to be like him. And he twists that. He turns it. And all of a sudden they take fruit from the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, and their eyes are open and they're like, oh man, alright, so now we're shameful and we're naked and we're hiding ourselves. And that's what happens in the first three chapters of Genesis. Sorry if I spoiled anything, if you haven't read that, uh, that particular section. If you haven't, you probably should go home and read it today. But what happens is, 
because of Adam and Eve's choice, because of these, the first people's choice, they lose everything. They lose everything. They lose relationship with each other. They lose purpose and they lose meaning. They lose productivity where thorns are starting to come out of the ground where they till everywhere. And it's all replaced with futility, death, and decay. Death and destruction and futility and decay everywhere. And basically what happens is as soon as humans take what we would commonly call truth into their own hands, as soon as they take the definition of good and evil, as soon as they take the definition of what's right and what's wrong into their hands, it becomes a weapon becomes a weapon. Now, here's the thing. This is why we started the 50,000 foot view. The beauty of this story is, yes, it's something that happened, but here's the beauty of it. It's something that still happens today. I mean, if you want proof of that, go ahead and pull out your phone and log into Facebook for a little bit, or Instagram, or Twitter. Or watch some news. Or pick up a newspaper. Or go on to any news site. I mean, you can go to uh, Fox News because it's the only fair and balanced source ever. (laughs) Right? Do you hear that? But do you hear that claim of truth? We're the only one that's fair and balanced. Just so you guys know, everyone is unfair and unbalanced. But this thing that happened, right? This thing that happened in the presence of God, this thing where they took of the knowledge of good and evil, where all of a sudden they hold truth as a weapon. This is something that echoes out into every single day that we live. God's kingdom got flip-flopped on its head. And now we live in a kingdom of death and decay and destruction and chaos and power. And it's the thing that all of us knows as we listen to the world around us. This place lacks purpose and lacks relationship and lacks healing and lacks goodness and lacks salvation and lacks truth. Right? This place lacks truth. So we've done the 50,000 foot view. Now I'd like to just kind of settle down into this text for today. So we're going to read John chapter 18. Pretty much the whole chapter. But I wanted to set the scene. I wanted to set the scene. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version because I forgot my NIV. Okay. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden. Oh, interesting. Well, fast forward. There's a garden again. Okay. Which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, do you see that again? Like his knowledge of truth, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom he gave me. Whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant uh, servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink this cup that the Father has given me? 
So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. So Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Judas, or excuse me, with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter stood outside of the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now the servant and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was so cold and they were standing and warming, warming themselves. Peter also was standing with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching and Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard what I said to them. They know what I said. When he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, and this is always an Italian accent in my head, is that how you talk to the high priest? It's just there. Sorry. But it causes it to come so alive, doesn't it? I mean, think about it, right? Like, is that how you talk to that high priest or anything? Okay. Anyways, Jesus answered him, if, I, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? And Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once a rooster crowed. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled and could eat the Passover. It's just a wild statement, right? They're trying to maintain their holiness and purity in this whole thing. Now I lost my spot because I got excited. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to them, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? And Jesus said, and here's our verse, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born. Now this is a statement you should be going, this is what Christmas is about. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. We're going to continue a few more verses. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a multiple, excuse me, in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, king of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you 
you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man! When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And the Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to the law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, Will you not speak to me? You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king, and they cried out, Away with him. Away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered them over to them to be crucified. I hope my 50,000 foot view is helpful in establishing the context of this particular passage. If we don't understand that at the 50,000 foot view, when humanity takes truth into their own hands and use it as a weapon for death and destruction, if we don't understand this then we may miss something incredibly powerful here in this John passage. In, uh, in I guess, I'm sometimes a little afraid of asking for, for uh, response, but uh, uh, not because I'm afraid of you guys, but I'm afraid of me losing control of, uh, of my own mouth. So, um, but I, I want to I hear, what do you guys, if I, when we talked about this, that mankind, when they own truth, will destroy everything. Then we read this John passage. What are you seeing in here? What are you seeing in here? Go ahead. I, I mean that. What are you seeing in here? It's not a preaching point. I'm asking you a question. What are you seeing in here? Anybody? Corruption. Corruption. Political. But more than that, what else are you seeing? Betrayal. Betrayal. Um, when it kind of comes down to a pilot's just like, well, what is even truth? And he's being really sarcastic in my mind. There's, no, there's not even any truth in his mind. He pulls the, as Nick said on Friday, he pulls the philosopher card on Jesus, which is incredible to me, right? <laughs> Like, here, Jesus, read a philosophy novel and get yourself educated. What else are you seeing in this passage? Go ahead, Josh. Um, my pastor back home always said that um, everything in the Old Testament happens again in the New Testament, and it's kind of cool that uh, you can see that with the, um, the tree of life and then along with the garden. They're They're very similar. This whole thing takes place in the garden, which is fascinating. Yeah, I mean, your brains are thinking the right way, but I want your hearts thinking here. What you should see in this passage, what I want you to see in this passage, is that there are players. There are many people in this passage. There are many characters in this passage. And Christina is going to pull up a whole list of them for us. There's Judas. And Judas is looking at this. And he's thinking, man, money is the truth, right? Like he sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. That... Let's give Judas a little bit better for the doubt. I think he wanted to use that for the poor. I actually do think he wanted to use that for the poor and take a little bit for himself. 
But he thought money was the solution. That money was going to fix people's problems and that if we had enough money, we could actually take care of all of the, you know, we could take care of the poor problem in our city. You ever hear that? You ever hear that today? Then there's Annas. And Annas is a lot like, uh, in fact, what we know is Annas is a Sadducee. He rules over the money changers' tables, right? There's a little money that's going on there. But he's also a very powerful people, a person. And Jesus really ticked him off when he kicked over the money changer tables. And Annas is not even technically the seated high priest. And he's the one that Jesus stops to first in a mob-style uh, interrogation. Mafia-style interrogation. And he's sitting there going, man, you're stopping by me because I'm the first gate buddy. And in Annas' mind, power is truth. In Peter's mind, right, safety is truth. He's sitting there manipulating truth around him so he can stay safe even though he just lopped off Malchus's ear. And Pilate's sitting there going, man, no, my position is what's true because as soon as the Jews press on the right button and say, we have no king but Caesar and you're no friend of Caesar's, he steps too, right? And he locks steps right in line. Pilate thinks position is truth. And then you've got the soldiers, right? They're twisting up crowns of thorns. They're obeying their orders to the T and having a great time doing it. And then you have the crowd. And they're just whipping up chaos, right? We have a law that says he needs to die. We have no king but Caesar. We're Jews. No, we're Romans. No, we're going to do whatever it takes to create enough chaos to get this man dead. That is what humans do when we hold truth. That is what humans do when we hold truth. We take it and we use it like a weapon. And here stands the author of truth. Here stands the one, the only one who actually knows what's happening, is standing there going, you would have no authority unless it's been given to you. And that's the truth. See, every single person in this story is ragefully, simply twisting the truth to fit their own needs. And they're doing it in order to get rid of Jesus. Every single person. Every person involved looks at Jesus and determines Him to be their puppet, to be their piece, to be their pawn, to be their their little chess piece to win their game. And as that whole thing is swirling around Jesus, death and destruction comes in with it and pushes Him to the tree of death. It is evil confounded by confusion, or compounded by confusion, and everything is dying around them. What you're seeing there in that scene is what you see today. Uh, Justin said something fascinating last week when he said, and he, I don't know if he even knew what he was saying, but he said right off the top of his head, well, that doesn't look like the Jesus I made up in my mind. That doesn't look like the Jesus I made up in my mind. And every single one of us, myself included, has a Jesus that is in my mind. That is not the Jesus that's on the page. And what we see is we see people battling out their brand of salvation, their brand of saving the world, their brand of power, their brand of truth everywhere. And we see it in the eyes of CNN and Fox and the Conspiracy Channel and the Al Jazeera Network, all disagreeing on the same exact fact, right? Like, this is what we see, and I'm not trying to be political or anything about television, okay? I'm just saying, like, that's like one of the prime examples, right? Like, we got a set of facts, we got 19 million ways to see the facts based on your agenda and your Jesus, We'll just say your Savior. Jesus stands, though, in the middle of all this, showing and telling the truth. So here's where I want to wrap up on this. Jesus plays a little show and tell. 
And He shows and tells us what the truth really does. He shows and tells us what the truth really does. That truth matters. That truth matters. And truth looks like sacrificial love. And truth looks like true freedom. And truth looks like selfless service. And truth looks like hope. Because here stands Jesus in the middle of the darkest of darkness. Darker than the pit of my soul when it comes to Christmas, right? Like darker than that. Jesus stands in the middle of that darkness and says, I have come to testify, to witness to, to show and tell the truth. And so here's what the truth is. I'm going to die. I'm going to raise again. And I'm going to do that because God sent me to love you and to show you what love really looks like. See, without truth, life is chaos. There's no direction, no hope, no progression, no movement. There's nothing but what we see in this scene. Without truth, there's nothing but the loudest voice wins. There's nothing about the nothing, nothing more than the most powerful, the most money-driven, the most funded voice wins. That's what you see out there all around us, right? Like the loudest voice wins. So, Christians, let's become the loudest voice. I don't know if that's what Jesus would say. I think he'd say, let's die to ourselves serve this world until it kills us. Until it destroys us. Because we are about freedom, not power. We are about hope, not solutions to everything. We are about love. See, truth provides you with deep conviction. Something that you know. Something that you can live on. And it doesn't matter what swirls around you. You will stand firm on the truth. And if we don't stand firm on it, it's probably because we don't know the truth. Let's look at Peter for just a second, right? Like Peter, what does he do? Peter stands there. He's already said, Jesus, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the living one of God. Where should we go? You, you have the only, the only ones with the words of eternal life. And then when push comes to shove, Peter says, I don't know the man. I've never seen him before in my entire life. Three times. But then, after Jesus raises from the dead, something happens to Peter where he experiences the embodiment of truth dwelling inside of him and no more wishy-washy. No more Mr. I don't know the man. Now it's, I will not give up talking about that man. Truth provides you with a deep conviction. That is what the power of truth is. Truth will shift your life. It will rip your heart apart. It will tear you up. It will tear you up to... It will tear up any shred of a lie that you are living on. Because that is what truth does. And it will make you feel like an alien trapped in your own skin. Because the world does not know truth. Truth changes everything. So, Advent. First week. Week of hope. Let me give you a Christmas present here today. Let me give you a Christmas present here today. We have my tree of life back. Thank you. We already know what we have to act surprised. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Here's the truth. There's one in every crowd. No, just kidding. <laughs> I did. I did. Thank you for keeping me on my toes. All right. This Christmas season, let me start you off with the gift of truth. You were built to be in God's presence, receiving life and healing from Him. And the whole world knows this. 
this goes back. I want you to see this. I mean, this is not. This is again a replica that's fairly new, but the, the world around the Old Testament times knew that you were created for life. You were created for life, and life comes only from God's presence. But since the day you were born, you were taught and trained and reinforced to believe that the only person you can trust is you. And maybe a few that you deem worthy. And apart from God, you are walking in death, and you are so deceived that you think death is life. And that all you need is a little more death with a little more bells and whistles and technology on it. And that will truly bring you life. The truth is that the only way to be with the Father and to live in His presence is to cry out to God for salvation that has been given to you by the death of Jesus Christ on a cross 2,000 years ago and is freely accessible to everyone. And as you cry out to Jesus, asking Him to save you and to heal you and to change you and to give you life, as you come to the tree of life that has been set up with a man hanging on it, bleeding for you, and you take from the fruit of that tree of life, you will receive healing. You will receive power from the Holy Spirit. You will receive life. Jesus will give you His Holy Spirit to begin to literally form truth in your soul again. So we're going to move past the tree of life and move past the tree of knowledge and good and evil and just focus on the fact that on that tree that Jesus hung on, the tree of salvation, He gave you the gift of truth. That truth comes to live in you to give you hope once again. To get rid of that darkness, that dark pit, and say, this is time. It is time for me to bring truth back into this world. And truth can actually live inside of you. So Merry Christmas. It's the first time I get to say that. I actually enjoyed it. And that day his heart grew three times bigger. (laughs) Merry Christmas. Have the gift of truth, would you? Today we have truth on a table. The truth is that Jesus died. That He poured His blood out for you. And that you can come and receive forgiveness for your sins and salvation and a new way of living and truth that you can stand on in the midst of this world where things are dying and you become, sometimes I hate to say the word victim, but you become a victim to the fact that lies reign and rule in this place. And it's not just a victim because every one of us have participated, haven't we? But you can come to this table and you can take from the tree of life. Lord Jesus, we come before you and I ask that you would help us to live truly, to truly live in life. Lord, help us to not, like your, uh, like your word said, <laughs> 3,500 years ago, help us not to die in death and surely die. Help us to not walk around in death anymore. And as your word said, even um, only only a couple of thousand years ago, when Paul says this, help us not to be the people who are living and walking dead, to be performing the works of death in this world. Lord, bring life into our souls, to our hearts, into our minds, into our bodies, into our world. Lord, this is a world where 
death reigns. And your kingdom has come. So we pray that your kingdom come and your will be done on earth right here in me as it is in heaven. Give us truth. It's in your name, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you have been blessed. Please join us again at Common Ground Church.